Welcome to the EU Matters podcast. In this episode, we talk with Udo Bullmann, the chair of the Subcommittee on Human Rights of the European Parliament. Udo Bullmann has been a member of the European Parliament for the past 25 years. From 2018 to 2019, he served as president of the Group of Socialists and Democrats, the second largest in the European Parliament. We talk with him about the importance of human rights, the EU's role in the world, and foreign interference in the European Union. Mr. Bullmann, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, it's a pleasure. What is more important to EU foreign policy? economic interests or human rights? Well, there is a specificity of the European Union. The European Union was founded on the ashes of Europe after World War II. And you still find the dedication in the constitutional elements of our treaties. And what is remarkable is that in Article 21, for instance, whatever the European Union does in the world has to promote human rights. So this is a general clause. We would like to defend human rights and we would like to support the implementation of human rights to the benefit of everybody all over the globe. So this is the idea. So there is no question of relevance for human rights and in so far for the also subcommittee of human rights for the institutional treatment of our tasks because we have a horizontal obligation. It's not a wishful thing. It's not only nice to have, it's an obligation to scrutinize economic policy, foreign policy, trade policy, all the rest with impact on our neighbors, on the globe. Really, do we we have committed ourselves? Do we also fulfill our promises or do we fall short or even worse, contradict our human rights dedications? Here we have to intervene and recorrect. Of course, the European Union has also self-interests in economic policy, in foreign policy, in trade, but these self-interests have to be defined in a way where they are serving the interests of human beings, not uh, ruining the approaches of human beings uh, to have a decent life. That is the task uh, which we have to do and to fulfill each and every day. In our previous episode, your colleague David McAllister, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, said that the EU shouldn't just be a payer but it should also be a player on the world stage. Can the EU become a world player? What the Europeans have to learn, their institutions have to learn, because our people feel it already and see it already. What the institutions have and the institutional players in the European Union have to learn is that the room for maneuver for our domestic achievements is today more than ever dependent on our international position, on the state of global politics, on the quality of the multilateral system, and on our success to keep peace, to produce peace, where we unfortunately have uh, new situations or old situations of uh, 
conflict and war, and of good neighborhood. So only if we position the European Union as a global player, we are able to guarantee a positive future for the next generations within the European Union. And by doing so, we also help to fulfill the promise of the United Nations, the 2030 agenda, to create to the benefit of everybody a sustainable, a more sustainable and a more just and equal world. You mentioned conflict and wars. Uh, there is Russia's war against Ukraine, uh, the war against Hamas. But many people also worry that the conflict between Serbia and Kosovo could escalate further. What is the overall goal of the EU in this conflict? Well, looking at all our different external policies, we have to take care that we produce positive spillovers in our economic policies, in our foreign affairs policies. So what do I mean? Many, many new conflicts, some of the old as well, go back to fights about resources. These fights about resources will be enhanced by environmental challenges, climate change. So if you talk to the experts, you can see once you have an environmental crisis, very often, a couple of years after that, you have military conflict. So unfortunately, this is the state we are in. So sustainable development strategies for ourselves and for our neighbors is a must for us. And the other second very important element is to fight inequalities. Because only societies which are not poisoned by huge income differences between the very healthy and uh, the poorest uh, people are able to stabilize themselves, to be peaceful, and to modernize in a sustainable way. So fighting the SDG 10, fighting inequalities, is one of our most important goals with our policies. So that is a whole range of conflicts in the world grounding in fights about resources. Then you have um, old conflicts, of course, also about resources, land in this uh, respect. For instance, Israel and, and uh, Palestine, uh, the, the current Gaza conflict, conflict around Gaza, where we have to say the international community has missed so many opportunities in the past. And we see the tragedy on both sides today. Uh, the criminal activities and the cruel attacks of Hamas on innocent Israeli lives. Uh, and on the other hand, meanwhile, more than 25,000 uh, victims, two-thirds of uh, them uh, being women and children in Gaza. Uh, we have uh, a mounting number of, of killed people in the West Bank as well. So here, this situation urgently calls for break the negative cycle. And as bad as it is to restart negotiations for a sustainable peace now. What we are doing in the Subcommittee of Human Rights, we brought together, let me call them uh, bridge builders, positive actors uh, from both sides. And it was one of our most important meetings to have here people who 
launch initiatives to restart a positive relationship. I will never forget uh, a young teacher coming from London to us, a um, Jewish teacher who lost both parents in the Hamas attacks. It was so sad to hear the story, but afterwards he was in the front line to ask for peace and to re-stabilize uh, the relationship of people of goodwill on both sides. So this is one of our tasks, and we would like to uh, bring these good ideas to cre recreate a peaceful world, to overcome conflicts like this one, who has caused too many deaths during the last decades, and to stop the violence in a way that uh, not all the next generations on both sides having the same destiny than the last generations had. Uh, that is worthwhile, our full commitment, and this is one of our exercises to try whatever is possible in the very situation. Let's go back to the Subcommittee on Human Rights. Uh, what does it do? How does it hold accountable the Commission and the Council? Well, of course, uh, it's the usual uh, parliamentary business. Uh, we are going on missions. So we check what is going on. We were in Israel and Palestine, and I hope we can go back there very soon. We were in Ethiopia, we went to the Ukraine, for instance. My first trip was to Vietnam, a country many of us think a very friendly country, better than in China. We agreed on a trade contract some three years ago to the benefit of both sides played out very well for the Vietnamese economy, also for the European economy. A society that does everything to fight poverty and to gain wealth. But on the other hand, we realized during the last three years, during the time we had our uh, trade agreement, uh, they doubled uh, the amount of political prisoners. It's becoming more and more difficult to be uh, a journalist in this country. It's very difficult to be uh, an environmental uh, activist because uh, if you are not very careful, uh, cautious, you can end up in prison very easily. So they didn't like us to come, the Human Rights Committee. They, they're more happy with the foreign affairs, they're more happy with the trade people, but we insisted on presenting them the lists of political prisoners. And we were telling them, guys, there is so much positive in our uh, <coughs> collaboration. If you do not want to put that at risk, get to terms with what you promised. So this is a typical uh, job we have to do. But we also look to the Commission, we look to what the Council is doing. Uh, we were very critical with Ursula von der Leyen and with her commissioners on what happened in the Memorandum of Understanding with Tunisia, for instance. Yes, of course, we would like to have good neighborhood, we would like to have agreements, but where are human rights in this contract? For what do you invest money? To give an autocrat additional uh, uh, resources without getting him down to promising uh, his, the, the life of, of the people in his country is going to be improved. So you find Tunisian people in the boats that are crossing the Mediterranean. And we are paying for this kind of practices? No go. 
So we have critical uh, debates uh, and uh, supervisory tasks with uh, the European executive uh, authorities as well. That is only two examples of what we are doing on a regular basis. You just said that your committee was not exactly welcome in Vietnam. So I'm just wondering, do you get that sort of reaction a lot? Is that the same with other countries? Well, the human rights defenders are happy if we are coming. So <laughs> there's a lot of friendship uh, just in a sudden. If you uh, arrive in a country, they are looking to meeting you and, and we are more than happy to doing that. But uh, that is a, a matter of serious uh, relationships. Uh, and what I have to say, the Vietnamese authorities, uh, they engaged in a controversial discussion. And we saw also movements on their sides. And we were talking to parliamentarians of a new generation who have then privately told you afterwards what they think. So you have to use the leverage that you have. Leverage is here that you negotiate on a diplomatic basis. Leverage is if you go, for instance, to Ethiopia, they know exactly they are in a post-war situation, but currently they have a lot of military conflicts also within the country in different regions. They need the support of the European Union to rebuild the country and to get further support for development endeavors. But we were saying, yes, but we are looking what you are doing. Is this a contribution to internal peace or do you buy weapons? So you have leverage in your economic and financial collaboration and trade, the combination with human rights and trade is marvelous because we are permanently trying to improve uh, uh, due diligence practices with our legislation. We are permanently trying to um, invent something uh, what the High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, called uh, the human rights economy. So how can economic means contribute, co contributing to, to the well-being of all, especially to the lower 40% of a society? Volker Turk is uh, totally uh, uh, passionate to promote the idea of uh, um, the human rights economy. And this is one of our best collaborators. We, we try whatever we can do also uh, to collaborate with Volker Turk and the United Nations to improving uh, multilateral safeguards. Does the EU have leverage over Iran? Germany has had a steady economic relationship with the Islamic Republic, despite the fact that the regime holds a number of EU citizens, including German nationals, as hostage. There is now even an EU diplomat held hostage in Iran. What does the European Parliament do about these cases? We have had only recently a full meeting on the human rights sanction, global sanction regime, where we discussed how effective are our sanctions. Iran is a, a prototype of uh, uh, testing uh, our capacities to sanction the right people. Do we do enough here to influence a situation? We came together also with Richard Radcliffe, the husband of uh, Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe, a British-Iranian citizen who was kept hostage by Iran 
for some six years and had uh, interested, took an interest in, in his experiences and listening to him. And the conclusion for us was that we need to reform our human uh, uh, rights sanction regime, that sanctions are not so much an instrument of global politics, of economic uh, interrelationships, but rather more and more are developed as an instrument of human rights policy so that we establish a moral status, moral transparency and really get down on the main actors behind violations of human rights. Iran is a test area for that, but not only. Russia in the war in the Ukraine is another one for only for example. And we, we try to make experience, we try to exploit the good and the bad of our practices and to improve um, <clears throat> our instruments here to achieve our goals. We have also invited the Canadian government, for instance, because the Canadians are interested in the same matter. So we collaborate with uh, like-minded states who have similar ambitions as we have uh, to improve uh, the human rights situations by the means at our command. And sanctions are one of those means. And what about the Islamic Revolutionary Guard? Will it end up on the EU's terror list? There is a clear-cut message from the European Parliament on that. We have, that, we have demanded that in various resolutions in Strasbourg. So there's a huge majority uh, of the European Parliament behind that demand. And it's now on the member states to introduce that on, on European level. We are pushing for that. Do you think it will happen? It depends on the foreign ministers in the Council. Uh, but I'm totally in favor because we see the role of the so-called revolutionary guards. Uh, many of them are main suppressors of freedom-seeking people in Iran. Let's turn to the issue of foreign interference in EU politics. 15 months ago, a scandal erupted in the European Parliament called Qatargate. What has the European Parliament learned from it and what is done to prevent another such case? Well, me personally, I'm a result of this uh, uh, situation because I uh, took over uh, the chair of the Subcommittee of Human Rights uh, after uh, this crisis. Uh, in March uh, last year. And what we promised from our side, from the committee side, is to have always an absolute transparency of whom we meet, what we are doing, and who gets access to our meetings, which is a necessity, of course. Uh, we want to see the human rights defenders. We want uh, to keep those out with the big... Uh, uh, coffers and with the big pockets. We don't need any lobbyists who try to influence our resolutions. And I'm more than happy that I think that was successful. Uh, so our performance, as far as I can see that today, is out of any discussion. And we are there for those who are wounded and for those who are speechless and not for those who would like to buy anybody. So full stop on that. That is a clear-cut policy, and we have zero tolerance for anything else, whether that is Qatar, whether it's Morocco, Mauritania, or whoever. Um, number two, the parliament itself renewed its rules to guarantee 
practices all over the full parliament uh, in the same manner. You have to be careful to touch upon the wrong and not on the right people. So it should not be any barrier for real human rights defenders, but it should uh, put up barriers for all those who have uh, uh, different purposes to manipulate uh, us. I think the attack on the European Parliament indicated that the European Parliament's resolutions and European Parliament's ongoings are more important than many think. But on the other hand, it needs also a certain ethical position. If you come over corruption, it's also always about both sides. So, and if the spirit in which we lead our meetings, the spirit in which we lead our parliamentary groups, our institutions is clear, then people will not try. And that has to be uh, clear from the side of the European Parliament. I hope it's also clear from the side of the Commission and from the Council, because uh, we are not the only institution under attack. If you look how legislation comes into existence, then you have a whole lot of pressure on national governments, for instance. You rather do this. You should not dare to do that. If you do X, Y, Z, be aware of the consequences. It's not always people are paid for what they are doing. Sometimes, and perhaps even more, lobbyists try to threaten people. So they describe the consequences, the impact of a specific legislation they do not like as the end of the world. And it needs courageous legislators, it needs courageous policymakers and independent minds who themselves judge what is right and wrong in the best interest of the majority of the people. There were media reports recently that a colleague of yours, a Latvian member of the European Parliament, served as an agent of the Russian Secret Service. Is she the only one, or are there more spies among the MAPs? Investigations are going on, so I will not comment on what the authorities are doing, because this is theirs, and it's their job. But we warned, years and years ago already, uh, against foreign influences. And we have had also a specific committee working with uh, threats like that. It was already, many years ago, it was already clear that the European Union is going to come under the attack from guys like Putin, autocrats, who do not like the institution playing a global role with human rights as one of the key demands. They don't like players like that. And on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, I had the impression when I saw that it was one of the best people of Trump, Steve Bannon, who organized the Brexit, that also some of whom we could have thought they come from like-minded states don't like us neither and would like to weaken the capacity of the Europeans to play an international role. You have to be aware of that. 
And only if you are clear about these kinds of threats, you are able and hopefully also willing to take the right measures, practical measures, technical measures, to uh, make as good as you can your uh, deliberations immune against foreign influences. Uh, in the very specific cases, I take it very seriously and I hope that everything is going to be done to clarify the situation and to hinder uh, other situations from become, uh, becoming influential uh, in, in the interest of foreign forces. But it's a matter of self-esteem of the European institutions also to protect itself. To follow up on this, after Qatargate, now the European Parliament seems to have its Russiagate moment. What are the other bad players trying to influence the European Parliament or the European Union? Perhaps a bit uh, for a broader picture. If I listen to journalists, if I listen to their investigations and their statistics, unfortunately we are living in a world of shrinking democratic spaces. It's becoming more and more complicated uh, to uh, live your life in self-determination in the way you would like to do that, to have a political opinion, to have a political stance which you can act out freely without suppression. And we need to do everything, especially to liberalize the societies in those countries where we see the threat of shrinking spaces can only be done if we do not only talk to governments, but establish something like a multi-layered diplomacy. We have to speak to academics, to business people, of course, especially also to journalists, those who influence and uh, live in the media world, but also to NGOs, those who defend people and help them to use democratic spaces because this is what the people want all over the world. So that, that is one of the reasons why the European Union never ever should and never ever can afford to get weaker on our human rights demands. On the other hand, it needs, of course, productive relationship with those countries we can reach. And here we need to understand, look, for instance, the development of the BRICS, BRICS Plus community, a very diverse uh, sample of states with very diverse ideologies and ideas of how to govern internally and how to behave uh, internationally. But only if you talk to Brazil, only if you talk to South Africa, only if you talk to India do you understand the guys. And you also understand the right demand of nations to be treated on equal footing by good partners and not to be treated in a what they very easily think is a post-colonial style of relationship. So we need a holistic foreign policy, taking care, spearheading for human rights, taking care of the idea of good partnership, strengthening uh, international uh, and multilateral uh, relations, but also leading by example. Only if we modernize our societies, guarantee in all our member states 
free speech, free journalism, democratic rules. We can uh, hope that other, others will join us in this endeavor uh, to bring our values and to defend our values, which are uh, universal values all over the world. Mr. Bullman, thank you very much for the conversation. It was a pleasure. I thank you.